So here at New Life, we have been making our way through a book called Gentle and Lowly, seen here in the shrink wrap as it's being sold in the back. These are still available for sale. If, if you are in a small group or not in a small group, we're going through this as a church, week by week. People are going through at different speeds in their small groups. Some people are doing more than one chapter a week. We're doing a chapter every week uh, that we meet. Uh, but some people are going through it a little faster. But I'm also uh, preaching through it along with whoever else joins, joins to preach on the, from the pulpit through the book. And last week, we meditated on Hosea 11, which, uh, which chapter 7 of this book, Gentle and Lowly, What Our Sins Evoke, is based upon. And I was, I was very touched by that chapter. Uh, it's tr- truly poetry, truly beautiful. It's God the Father's heart on display for his people, for all of, for all of us to see. Um, last week, we read through this passage slowly several times in the congregation, and I was so thankful uh, for, for all of the insights that you shared with me and with one another about this passage, and that was really fantastic. I'm thankful for that. Um, given that we read it so carefully last week, and you all had such great insights. I think we're going to have an even better time as we go through this passage verse by verse this week. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful to have taken my, my thoughts and then integrated what you shared last week with, with me into this sermon. So you'll hear some of the things that were talked about last week from all of you as well. So Hosea, so Hosea 11. I read, I read the book of Hosea fresh this week um, and was just considering considering this, this remarkable book. Hosea, the, our passage, Hosea 11, is, is preceded by the first 10 chapters of Hosea. And it's a prophetic book which likens God's relationship with his people to a marriage, like many other places in the scriptures. The bridegroom and the bride, God and the church, Jesus and the church. But in Hosea, uh, it likens God's relationship with his people to a dysfunctional marriage. It's a very dysfunctional marriage. And the dysfunction is not on God's side, but on the side of his people, as we see time and time again. In Hosea 1 to 3, we, we start seeing this thing unfold when God calls the prophet Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. Again, he's telling Hosea, this woman will not be faithful to you, but I would like you to marry her and set up house with her. In other words, you're about to have a dysfunctional marriage to show my people what it's been like for me to be married to them over the years. And also to show my people the extent of what I've done for them and my love for them. So it says in Hosea 1, verses 2 and 3, Go marry a promiscuous woman, have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So Hosea married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, what number is Gomer on in the baby, baby, top baby names? It's, uh, I, I've never met a, a, a woman named Gomer before. That'd be something. So in chapter 3, after bearing three children uh, together with Hosea, two boys and a girl, Gomer is, as, as was known beforehand was going to happen, she was unfaithful to Hosea. And she actually is, apparently, uh, was actually a prostitute as well. So this is not, not necessarily something that you wouldn't expect. In Hosea 3.1, God says to Hosea, The Lord said to me, to Hosea, Go show your love to your wife again, 
Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Yum. So I looked up a raisin cake recipe. It's an ancient boiled cake with the, with the equivalent of a brown sugar frosting on it. It looks delicious, but that has nothing to do with the sermon here. Love your wife as the Lord loves the Israelites. She has turned to other men. My people have turned to other gods. They have turned from me because of their love of sacred raisin cakes. Like, this is a dysfunctional relationship. We like the raisin cakes. They have better cookies at that church or better coffee at that, you know. <laughs> the other gods have better raisin cakes, apparently. Because Gomer, Hosea's wife, has essentially or literally rented out her, her body to other men, Hosea actually has to buy her back for 15 shekels of silver and some barley. The price of a common slave in this day. Hosea then takes her back in as his full wife, as if she'd never sinned against him. Does that remind you of anybody else? Remember we, we talked about reading through the story last year, the story of the whole Bible, and Becca enumerated many examples uh, of, of reading through the story. Uh, does that remind you of anybody else? Hosea takes her back as if she'd never sinned. The text goes on in Hosea 3, 2 to 3. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man. And I will behave the same way towards you. Hosea has kept up his end of the bargain in the marriage so far. He has not been unfaithful to his wife. And he assures her that though she has been unfaithful, now she is to be faithful once again, and he will continue to be steadfastly faithful to her. Does that remind you of anyone? It's God and his people. God, God has, throughout the scriptures, used many images, poetic images, to show Israel what his relationship with them is like. Now you know about God being, in Psalm 23, a shepherd to his sheep. Uh, you know about God being a father to his children like a king with his subjects. But this picture of a bride and groom is a very pervasive picture in a very intimate way that God chooses to describe his relationship to his people the most often in the scriptures. It's a high commitment based on covenant. That's what God's relationship is with his people. And a marriage is also a high commitment based on a covenant that a man and a woman make with one another. When, you, when people get married, they say, I will hold up my end of the marriage covenant, and you hold up yours. God, and as God describes in Hosea, his feeling is that his people, his beloved bride, they've treated him with contempt by prostituting themselves out to other gods, like Gomer prostituted herself to other men, though they are supposed to be married. To show God's love, God explains that he treated Israel like Hosea has treated Gomer, taking her back, even buying her back from other gods whom she has obligated herself to. Now God's marriage with his people, like Hosea's to Gomer, has not been a good marriage, characterized by the bare minimum of faithfulness and fidelity that's required to make it work. You know, God's people have been unfaithful and given themselves to other gods, to other gods with better raisin cakes in the past, and God has continually brought them back. 
as we, as we said, this troubled marriage between God and his people is not, is not only in the book of Hosea, but it's throughout the whole Bible. And we saw it many times last year as we read through the story. You know, we have been unfaithful, but God has remained faithful. You know, we've been disciplined by God that we might come back to him. And we have often been rescued by God despite ourselves and despite incomplete repentance on his people's part. And all of our problems, just like in Hosea and Gomer's marriage, have been caused by us and our forefathers, not God. God has been faithful from the beginning. But God, as was shared last week, made a plan before the foundations of the world to send his son, Jesus, to live a life of example, to die for our sins, so that we, like Gomer, can be bought back from all of the gods we have prostituted ourselves to, from all of our other loves that have overtaken our love for God. And God hasn't just paid this one-time slave price of 15 shekels and some barley, like Hosea with Gomer, but he's paid the bride price once for all time with one sacrifice, Jesus Christ, his one and only son. So how is it that we are now able to have this amazing relationship with God that we enjoy today? This amazing marriage-like partnership with God, despite our fickleness and unfaithfulness and shakiness. It's because of the price that God paid to make it so. That's why we're able to have this relationship with God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I read this amazing quote this past week. It's called, What is Sin? It said, If sin is a crime, we need a pardon. If sin is a disease, we need a physician. If sin is uncleanness, we need sacrifice. If sin is an inheritance, we need a new birth. If sin is ignorance, we need instruction to maturity. If sin is rebellion, we need a mediator and a peace treaty. God has done it. God has done it. Everything that sin touches in our lives and how comprehensive it is, God has taken care of all of our sin. Jesus paid it all. And God made this plan before the foundations of the world, before anything even went wrong. Because God, just like Hosea knew that Gomer was not going to be faithful to him, God knew that we were not going to be faithful to him as well, before the foundations of the earth. So in his love... God sent his only son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a once-for-all price that God has paid to buy us back. This is the message of the book of Hosea. An imperfect, sinful man named Hosea wasn't perfect, wasn't Jesus, certainly, commanded to marry a woman who was known to be unfaithful to her husbands in the past. And when she acted in the ways that he, we always knew that she would, Hosea bought her back so they could once again be together. And this brings us to Hosea 11, which we meditated on last week. In the first verse, we're going to go through this bit by bit with all of this in mind. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And here in this very first verse, God is reminiscing on his relationship with his people Israel in the way the husband or wife might remember the early days of their marriage. That's what God is describing. 
When Israel was a child, I loved him. In the early days of my relationship with Jackie, you know, we would meet up and have a relaxed cup of coffee on common grounds. And after we were done meeting and talking to together, we'd go to our own homes, and we weren't married, and did whatever people that are single do with their time, which I don't really know what we did. I actually have no idea. Jackie doesn't either. I, don't, I do not know what we fill our time with. I really don't. Um, that, those are the, the early days of the relationship. We just do what single people did, have coffee, and then go home. In the early days of God's relationship with his people, directly after creation, we have Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, stamped with the image of God, just like we are. And they were loved by God and taken care of by God's own hand. As Becca mentioned, they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. But they were also unfaithful. They were the first ones to go this direction, disobeying God's one reasonable directive not to eat from one tree among the many that God had provided in the garden. And thus, sin came into the world. And the curse of sin came upon the people. This, this sinful nature and sin has been the inheritance to every person who's been born since that time. You know, we're born with this in ourselves. Though Adam and Eve were disciplined, they were, they were not forsaken by God. The God of Hosea was at work even then the faithful one, who's faithful despite the unfaithfulness of his people. Even at this time, God knew how bad the sin problem would get, how troubled his marriage to his people would become. And in the midst of the curse, after Adam and Eve fall, God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15, which was shared last week as we read together. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, we know for sure that God is talking here about the coming of Jesus Christ, which we're celebrating this Advent. Now, Jesus ultimately will crush Satan's head after himself receiving a mortal blow when Satan struck Jesus at the cross and killed him. Now, Satan's destiny has been assured from the time that God made that promise in Genesis 3.15 to the present, and literally it was carried out at the cross. And Jesus' great salvation is being made known right here at the very beginning before anything even went wrong. God's son will die. He'll receive a mortal blow, but he will rise again victorious over sin and death. So Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother over some very petty stuff, as far as we can see. A lot of rivalry there. And from that time, the Bible says wickedness increased on the earth in a way that we can't even imagine today. Um, wickedness increased to such a point that God was sorry that his creation was continuing to live in this way. And God flooded the earth, saving the family of Noah in the ark. Noah's ark was also a picture God was giving us of the coming salvation of Jesus Christ. Everyone who entered the ark, both people and animals, were saved from the flood and through coming into the ark. Just like we are saved through Jesus. And after giving the sign of the rainbow, God promised not to destroy his people he had made with floodwaters again. 
The rainbow was, was God putting down his bow of war, his weapon, his, his weapon of discipline. And from this time, God began making covenants with his people. First with Noah, and then to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and King David. And all of these covenants were filled with God's promises for his people, his promise of being to be faithful. And time and time again throughout history, God remained faithful to each of his covenant promises, and the people have not. I mean, every tiny dot on every I and every cross T, God has been faithful to every covenant he has made, even to the point where God is still acting in faithfulness to the covenants he made with, with our forefathers and with us. God is completely faithful. The unfaithfulness of God's people, though, as we said, was not a surprise to God. Just as Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea was not a surprise to Hosea. All the way back in God's, my, one of my favorite images in the Bible, when God is making a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, they, they, they cut the animals in half, and the idea is that both of them will walk through the pieces of these animals and say, may I be like one of these animals if I do not keep up my end of the bargain. And in, the, in Genesis 15, Abraham falls asleep, God doesn't wake him up, and God comes, his presence comes and passes between the halves, and he promises that he will keep up his end of the bargain. What a picture of uh, God's faithfulness amidst our sleepy sinfulness. All of this was leading, all these covenants were leading to Jesus Christ, who had been foretold in Genesis 3.15. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So Hosea 11 picks up the story of God and his people in Egypt when they are being disciplined by God and they are enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. You know this story in the book of Exodus. And it should be pointed out that God also knew about this story in Genesis 15 when he prophesied that God's people would be captive in Egypt hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. None of this is a surprise to God. So it says in Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is the most amazing story of salvation in the Bible. The, the, the idea of the exodus of God's people from Egypt after signs and wonders were performed for Pharaoh. It's like the most amazing story of salvation. If you take the Gospel of Matthew, it alludes to the story of the exodus time and time again. Just as Moses delivered God's people from bondage in Egypt, so Jesus delivers God's people from bondage to sin and death. To a, to, into a promised land of good things, which we know was a very short-lived experience for God's people as they were unfaithful once again when they were coming into the promised land. But through Jesus' exodus from sin and death, for each of us that look to Jesus, to be rescued from slavery. Um, this is the picture. Jesus leading us out of sin and death into an eternal life with him. A paradise in eternity with Jesus. So Hosea 11.1 1 is saying that out of God's love and faithfulness to his people, he called them out of Egypt to be his people. Moving forward to Hosea 11.2, it says... But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, 
and they burn incense to images. So right after the remembrance of calling his people from Egypt, God remembers um, how the more he called them, it seemed the more that they went away from him towards idolatry. And you would think that this would have been enough for God's people, this great salvation from slavery in Egypt would have been enough for them to remember and to venerate, to, to respect God and appreciate his faithfulness. But what happened very shortly when they were being led out of, the, out of Egypt was grumbling. Grumbling for food, grumbling for water, grumbling against leadership. And then there was a golden calf incident where when, when Moses was up in the mountain getting the Ten Commandments handmade by God on stone tablets, Aaron, who was left behind, uh, caved to the people's desires to make an idol for themselves and say, this is the idol that got us to have slavery in Egypt. And they melted down their gold pieces and made a golden calf. You know, God remembers that too. <laughs> no matter how much God called his people, they seemed to go astray. Of course, we know idolatry is not limited to such things as bowing down to a golden calf. But idolatry is also expressed in the grumblings of the people in the desert. You know, grumbling for better food, for, for more control over their lives, if you will, for the desires of their hearts apart from God's provision for them. You know, in, in this way, we are all idolaters. We all still have the same problems. You know, we worship comfort. We worship leisure. We, we, we have whole seasons of life where we are worshiping, you know, the fact that we can, you know, do this or that thing. Um, we, 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 we get lots of things backwards in our lives with God. But whatever is coming between you and God, whether it be selfish desires for, for literally anything, all the way to a golden calf, it's all idolatry. It's in every human heart. That's part of our inheritance of sin that we get from our forefathers. Hosea 11.3 It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. As parents can testify about their own, with their own children time and time again, without ever receiving the proper credit for it, God continues to work with his people. He disciplines them, he heals them, he teaches them, guides them. He even guided them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. You know, this is the pained heart of a parent who looks at their kid and says, don't you see all I'm doing for you? Don't you see how I feed you and clothe you and put a roof over your head and pay for your, your desires and hobbies and things you desire to do? How this is all... So all for you, yet still you grumble. You know, this is, parents know what that is like with their own kids. And we know kids developmentally often cannot actually make those connections for themselves. And it seems Israel had the same problem. And we have the same problem. We often, we, it said, God says, it's I who taught you from to walk, taking them by the arms. But it, they did not realize it was I who healed them. Guiding them, pillar of cloud, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, teaching, healing, and not only did he lead them in these very practical ways, he led them also by giving them the Ten Commandments. This is how you treat one another. This is how you love God and love people. Here's, some, here's very practical ways. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not covet. All these very practical commandments God gives in clear terms. And uh, those, God who was teaching his people to walk in this new life with him, they did not realize it was him who was doing it. They didn't, God, give credit didn't give God credit for all that. But God still did it. Because God is the God of covenant. And God never breaks a promise. 
God is always the faithful marriage partner. And as it says in our, in our passage, God is not a man that he should fail to keep a promise that he has made. God is God. Moving on to verse 4. It says, I led them with cords of human kindness. What a picture that is. I led with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. This reminds me of the New Testament verse in Romans 2, 4. It says, Or do you show contempt for the richness, richness of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You know, God led his people. They did not recognize it was him leading them and healing them. God has shown us the riches of his kindness and patience. Yet we fail to realize that God's kindness is meant to bring us to repentance, to a relationship with him. Now, God disciplined his people for their own good when they went astray. But in all of this, in all of this discipline, God was leading his people with cords of kindness. God was not leading his people like Pharaoh in Egypt. He'll set these two up against each other. Pharaoh struck fear into the people. He, beat, he, had, he had their overseers beat them with, uh, with rods so they'd work faster. When they complained about how hard the work was, he took away the straw that they needed to make the bricks. And they said, well, get your own straw. That's how Pharaoh leads his people. That's about the opposite of cords of kindness. God's way, God's preferred method, his way of leading his people, is cords of kindness. Bending down to his people's level, taking care of their needs like a parent to his children. God has not led us by striking fear into our hearts and just making demands of us. He's led us with cords of kindness. He's led us all the way to the point of coming as a human in Christ, gentle and lowly, fully God, fully man, to show us how to live and to make a way for us to walk with God through his own sacrifice. And he has not left us as orphans, but has even gone as far as to give us the Holy Spirit of Christ within us. Becca shared about it this morning. The, God was with them. God was with them. Now, it's, now he's saying, God, in Matthew 28, and now I am with you to the end of the age. Cords of human kindness. I love how it says that uh, he led them with cords of human kindness. It's like saying, I actually showed them love the way that they received love. It's like God says, I'm not going to love people the way I want to be loved, but I'll, I'll learn the love, love language of humans I've created, and I will love them in the way they need to be loved by me. And God has truly led all of us with cords of human kindness, both now and in the past. Hosea 5, uh, 11, 5 to 7. Will they not return to Egypt? Remember, they were delivered from Egypt. Will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me Most High God. I will by no means exalt them. This is the discipline of the Lord for his people. And we, we need to learn in our day that when God, when it feels like God is punishing us at times, that more often than not, God is disciplining those he loves. Which is different. 
You know, punishment is about retribution, about lashing out. And God is not a human that he should do something like that. God is God. Discipline is redemptive. It's where we are guided in order to teach us and lead us and keep us from greater danger. And in this verse, in the midst of all of this, these cords of human kindness, God, God talks about his discipline of his people. They, they, will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them? They will go into captivity again because they refuse to repent. God's goal is always, always the same, to help his people to repent so they can live a good life the way he intended. But they are unwilling. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. And this is God, God's, I need to get them to the end of their plans and their false prophecies so they can begin to see the true plan that I have for them to live in, a, in the right way. And many, many times uh, when these things happen in our life that feel like God is punishing us, we have to remember that just like with Israel, who sinned and fell into captivity, so God disciplines those he loves today. In Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, it says, And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? Have you forgotten that? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens, punishes everyone he accepts as his son. So endure hardship in life as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what, what children are not disciplined by their father? We've seen, them, we've seen them before, the ones that don't seem to be disciplined by their father or mother. They're maniacs. They're probably my kids, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, listen. Every good parent disciplines their children for their good. They're living in a bad way. They have their own plans. Their plans are not good. Their plans will not lead to human flourishing and will not lead to other people being blessed. They, they're going to lead to selfish destruction. Good parents discipline their children. And if you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, no Christian is exempt from discipline, if you are not disciplined, then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, our parents, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we might share in his holiness. Share in his holiness. This is the good life that God desires to give his people. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, God is not a man like us. He's not, uh, not uh, he is God. His ways are higher than our ways. He doesn't look at outward appearances at all. He just looks at the actual heart of every person, every institution, everything he looks at. He sees the heart of it. God is not crushing us with his anger when he disciplines us. Maybe you need to hear that this morning when you're, you're feeling like you're under discipline. He's not trying to crush you. He's trying to help you. He's trying to bring you back to a good path, to change directions, because the path you're on is not leading to a good place for you. We need to let his discipline train us. And we will, I, will, I will go as far as to say we will be much happier with a life that heeds the discipline of God because God is bringing us to a better, a better life, a better life in Christ. Not just life, but life to the full is what scriptures say.
So God used Egypt, he used Assyria, he used other nations to discipline his people when they refused to repent. God sent prophets like Hosea to speak into his people's lives, to warn them, to guide them. And God did this because his people were so hell-bent on turning from him, literally. It seems that they still are many times. Again, he says, My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. I see their heart. They are not. They are not living for me. They're going down a bad path according to a bad plan. God's discipline is his cords, is, how he, is one of the ways he leads us. It's one of the cords of kindness he leads us with. We need to heed his discipline and, re- and repent and turn. We need to recognize that when God disciplines us, he is affirming us as his children. You are my son. You are my daughter. That is why I'm doing this, for your good. So even if a bad father, even if there was a bad father out there, at least they would save their child from walking off a cliff. How much more our God, who is a loving father and a perfect father, would discipline us have love for us? God is perfect at that. So if God is disciplining you through circumstances in your life, do not see that as rejection. The world tells us if you don't feel God, if you, things are going badly for you, then you are rejected, you are forsaken. That's not the scripture, what the scripture says. It says if you are seeing trials of many kinds, God is working to develop you, to lead you with his cords of kindness, to, to make you turn around, make a hard turn towards a better way of living. God doesn't want his people lost in sin and death. And especially now that Jesus has come, and we look back to him and his resurrection on Easter, now we are set free to live to the full if we choose to. And God's discipline is meant to lead us in that direction through cords of kindness. Moving on to a very very tender section of this uh, about God's love for his people. Despite discipline, God says in um, Hosea 11, 8 and 9, How can I give you up, Ephraim? That's his, his people. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like nations that have been destroyed in the past of Adma or the Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All of my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One among you, I will not come against their cities. Remember the entire point of this book of Hosea, the story is that God loves his people despite the fact that the more he calls to them, the more they turn from him and follow other gods. And in his heart, God shares his deep love for his children. How can I turn from my people? How could I, how could I give them up? How can my people ever become like a nation that is wiped out? I will not come against my people again, for I am, not, I am God and not a man, the Holy Among One among you. Now, God is not a man. God is not out of control in anything he does. He doesn't lash out in anger like we do. He instead uses discipline to refine and draw people to himself with cords of kindness. And when a debt comes about that no person can repay because of their sin, God himself comes to pay their debts so the marriage can be saved. All of the sin and turning from God is deserving of death and arousing God's wrath. But God will yet still not forsake his people. 
So he sent his only son, Jesus, to die in our place that we might live out our marriage with God. Such a tender, tender way of saying, how can I give you up? You know, if you have children, you could insert the name of your children there. How could I give you up, Elias? How could I ever give you up, Elias? You're my child, no matter what you do. I'll never give you up. Yep. And God says the same thing to us. Though I discipline you, it's for your good. I could never give up my child. God loves us so much that his very rightful, divine wrath that our sins evoke in him has been satisfied by Jesus at the cross once and for all. And now, for those of us who are in Christ, our sins no longer evoke wrath, but evoke help, grace, mercy. That's what our sins evoke from God as followers of Christ. The wrath, it's like that song we sing in Christ alone. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied once for all, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. So God has every right to carry out his anger towards sin, but he doesn't do it. In fact, Jesus has taken this all on himself for us. It says, God's heart changed within him. He will not come against his people again. He has bound himself to them in covenant and remained completely faithful. So he says, I will not destroy Ephraim again. The only person that's going to be destroyed is going to be my son, Jesus. As the sins of Israel and Ephraim and the people that will yet come to follow me and the people that have followed me in the past and people yet in the future who will sin against me. That all of that sin is placed on Jesus himself, God in the flesh, and all of God's righteous anger and wrath take, was absorbed on Jesus because of God's great love for us. So now when we sin against God, it evokes help. It evokes grace and mercy from the heart of God. I know people feel, rightfully feel disjointed in their relationship with God when they sin against God and, uh, and they have not repented and they're still walking in that sin and they're, they're you know, waiting for them, themselves to feel bad enough to confess it, whatever it might be, whatever we tell ourselves. Um, but truthfully, as the apostle says, we should throw off the sins that so easily entangle us. We should come to the throne of grace with confidence because we will find help in our time of need. It's especially when, we're, when we sin that we should realize that what this evokes from God's heart is help for us to be released from that sin. That's what it evokes from God's heart. So come to, come to Jesus. Come to God. God will not destroy Ephraim again. He took care of all of his wrath himself, on himself, by coming as a man. And God's faithfulness and all of his attributes um, have come together and focused on Jesus, his holiness, and Jesus has carried our sins away from us. What a great love that is. As it says, you know, God is not a man. So we will never understand his ways, but God has, like Hosea, buying back his adulterous wife, 
has paid this price once for all through Christ so that anyone who calls the name of Jesus can be saved. You know, it's an amazing gift God's given. It reminds me of, of 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You can see that love all the more clearly when we consider what it costs for God to send Jesus for us. And it costs him everything. It says in Romans 8.32, And he, God, God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Talk about hope. Talk about hope for, for us. If someone, if greater love cannot be found than someone giving up their life for a friend, then the greatest manifestation of love was Jesus giving up his life for his people. And if God has given Jesus to us, his life, suffered and died for us, how can we think that God will withhold any good thing from us? That's just, anything else would be a lesser act of love than what he's already done. So we can expect God's kindness and help to come to us. So finishing off this passage, we have two more verses. God goes from remembering his relationship with his people to talking about the future. It says, They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from, from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. People that comment on this passage say this, this is a, a future prophecy about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Earlier in the book of Hosea, early in the chapters, God is pictured as a lion devouring in, in judgment, devouring someone in judgment. Here he is a lion roaring, and he's calling his people, the remnant of his people everywhere, together, out of their bondage, out of their sins, from all the various places they have been locked up, whether it's Egypt or Assyria, and in our case, our, our, own, our own sin. And he says, come to me, and settles us in our homes. In the time of God's discipline, when his people were sent to Egypt, when the discipline was complete, and God heard his people crawling out to him for salvation from their enemies, he called like a lion, and the remnant of his people came out. And the deeper meaning of this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in Jesus' kingdom. God has now not just called a certain people, the Jews, but has extended his call far beyond to all the people of the world, Jews and Gentiles alike, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And now that the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled, where Jesus has crushed Satan's head, God's call has gone out into all the earth as God beckons people from every tr nation, tribe, and language into his kingdom. And most of us are here because we heard that call. And for those who are followers of Christ, you know, these stories that we read in the, in the, picture, in the scriptures of the past, you know, this text in Hosea, it's meant to be a warning to us to not turn from God like people did in the past. Not turning from God to, to, a, to a, me, a very meager existence, um, following idols and following our own sins. Um, we're, we're supposed to be warned by these stories not to make light of the great gift God's given us in Christ. So I'm trying to talk about today. Let's not make light of this. 
the Holy Spirit has this message for us today. I know because it says so in Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for, for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that we, that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The Holy Spirit says, all these things were written to teach us to turn, especially now, to Jesus Christ, turn to the living God and be saved. You know, God has come for us. You know, God still desires to have a faithful, marriage-like relationship with his people. Closer than a brother or sister, closer than a best friend, even closer than a spouse, a wife to their husband. And this is something that we should not take for granted, especially this Advent season. Now, Jesus has paid it all for us. I just invite everyone here, wherever your walk with God is at right now, whatever plan you are following, whatever journey that you are on, to come back to Jesus or, or come to Jesus this morning and pray through whatever might be holding you back. Think of the idols in your life. Consider the small things that ruin a good relationship with God and take away a life abundant that God wants us to live. Turn to Jesus again this morning. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.